Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners, and welcome to this new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. I welcome you to episode number 17 of season 8, and today, which is Sunday 19th of June 2022, my guest on this show is Gary Leckman, a returner to the show once again, and I'm sure that you will enjoy our talk greatly. So, if you are also a returner to this show, that's great because you are somebody who liked what you heard before here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. So, welcome back. Welcome to all of you who come here every week or almost every week. It's great to have you. Once again, uh, we have really, we are going up every week with our download figures and that's really great. Would be nice if the figures of our patrons also went up every week. Well, this week we had one more patron. That's great. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks to all of you who have so far already been supporters of this show, but please consider becoming a supporter of the show, a patron, go on the patreon.com website. You all know it by now and find out about the Thoth Hermes podcast there. Or if that sounds too complicated, go on the Thoth Hermes webpage, which is thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. You'll find the link directly to the Patreon page and also to a donation page if you prefer. What you also find there is a button link to Kai Kobad Radio. Just click on there and you listen to Kai Kobad Radio, our 24-7 internet radio live, where you hear the best podcasts and other occult stuff from the web and present it in two eight-hour loops each week. So 16 hours of program each week, not to miss for free, of course. Right. And again, talking about the website, there is also the possibility to give me feedback. And I like your feedback. Uh, Your feedback comes always handy because you tell me what you like, what you do not like about the show, if you have ideas. And please also don't forget to send me your music, the music that you have created, that you have played, because I always play music on this show. And it's great to have music from our listeners, which has often happened. So once again, I encourage you and even those who have already sent me something and have already appeared here, why not the second time we have over 130 episodes here now so no worries to come back with your music and um, talking about 130 episodes uh, all of them you'll find on that website as well with a link to all of them with the show notes which is very important to all of them because that's where you find supplementary information and links to all of uh, those guests web pages etc etc Yes, um, talking about music, um, this time I have a little 
speciality to start with eight music again here this week you'll see it's going to be very eclectic indeed three very different types of music but this first piece is a kind of um dedication dedication because well the piece that i play here first now is called she got arrested from the album of the interrupters and i found that music on the Facebook page of Jake Stratton Kent. Jake Stratton Kent, you know, he was a guest here on the show, a great, great occultist, his grimoires are legend. And well, as most of you probably know, he's suffered a severe stroke a couple of weeks ago. And all of us are really worried. And I had many people contact me and asking me if I had news from him. And unfortunately, I didn't. So I did one thing I contacted his girlfriend, uh, his girlfriend, Carol McCoy, and she gave me a brief statement about how he is doing and about some very nice and exciting news about the two of them. Um, and on the Facebook page of uh, Jake, there have been number of music pieces that have been kind of dedicated by friends of him that dedicated because they know that he liked this music so they just wanted to show that they care and that this is the music that jake likes and that's where i got that piece of music we start with now so this first piece of music the interrupters she got arrested is a dedication in some sense to jake stratton kent and we wishing him all the best and speedy and full recovery we all hope to have him back soon here and um, so thank you to the person, I don't know who it was, who selected that piece of music. I just picked it up there. And um, yes, let's play that. And then after that piece of music, you'll hear Carol McCoy, his girlfriend, talking to me in a brief statement how Jake is doing. She got arrested for shooting down her man, U.S. Marshals. Caught her outside of Spokane She said, I'd do it again Do it again Do it again I'd do it again I'd do it again Do it again Do it again Yeah, I'd do it again She met it like a year ago last Christmas He drove a truck in town on business she fell in love, or so she thought Cause Maryland was cold and the battle was hot So she moved alone to the city of sin Then got a place with him, but her chips all in, yeah Got dark, he was a stranger Put his hands on her in anger And she got arrested For shooting down her man U.S. Marshals Caught her outside of Spokane She said, I do it again, do it again Police station in an eight foot room for interrogation. Her fingerprints on the murder weapon. All they needed was a tape confession. And she was bloody, BPS. But I mean, it was cold, but she cried no tears. It, this time it was his blood on her. She wore it like a badge of honor. And she got arrested. Yeah, dude. 
drove a thousand miles In a cell for a year on trial No regrets for the things she done He lost the fight She wanted Tell the story Jerry heard it Deliberating For a verdict She's up a murder in the first degree Cause she refused to bleed insanity And she got arrested She got arrested by the interrupters and, as we said, somebody on the web, a friend of Jake Strattenkamp, dedicated that number to him because he knows he liked that. And that's why we played it here. And now listen to my little short three-minute talk to Carol McCoy, his girlfriend, and, well, you'll hear by yourself. So I'm speaking here to Carol McCoy, uh, who is Jake Strattenkamp's girlfriend and of course we all have heard about this so many people have asked me how jake was doing of course because they love him they all know him and he was on my podcast and um i don't really know uh, uh how he is doing and i thought well i should ask the person who is closest to him and uh, if you want to give us a first-hand uh, news how he's doing so please carol let us know uh what's the news Yes, um, yeah. Um, I am aware that Jake's got uh, people around the world that loves him. He's um, he's genius. He's broken open um so many um boxes of information, so many files, so many things that he's done. His mind is incredible, and uh, he's been. Um, I'm not going to say what Jake is to you. You know what Jake is to you. I'm, I'm going to say to me, okay? Um, he's doing okay. Uh, he's in physiotherapy, speech physio, as well as um, uh, intensive core muscle workings. I mean, it is really a, a paralysis situation where he can't move very much, but he's in there. He is completely alive. Everybody. All my friends, because I think sometimes I think when I go in, it's wishful thinking. Um, but no, every single buddy that goes in there says, yeah, he's in there. And he's just really bored, mm. shitless, to be honest. So mm. I'm trying my best to keep mm. him cheerful. So we thought we'd get married and uh, that was probably the best thing. And, and the light uh, was right there. He's like, he asked me twice. I said, no. Uh, you know, it was stupid then, but now, well, when these things happen, it just makes sense to, um, just to love. Just yeah, congratulations. To, thank you that. very much. We are going to be hellhounds. Anyway. Now, look, thanks for giving us that heads up, and please 
let him know when you have to possibility uh, that all the listeners here that we all think of him and we love him and that we wish him all a speedy recovery and please hug him from all of us i will do thank you caroline thank you for being with us for that thank you very much well it was nice to have her and from carol to make that little statement and also the great news that we just heard about them getting married. All our best wishes go to both of them. Right, and now we turn to Gary Lackman. Gary, who has now is now returning to this podcast. Um, he has been here about well, a bit over a year, almost two years now that he has been here talking to me. And the occasion this time why we met again is, first of all, a new book that he has released lately calling being called dreaming ahead of time and um, well it's it's a really interesting little book about dreams and lucid dreaming about premonition um, I'm not going to read an excerpt from here I prefer this time to have Gary talk about this book and he does it extensively so you're gonna enjoy that a lot uh, you know uh, Gary he is really good when he gets into it, then you get a lot, a lot of very useful and helpful information. And in the second part of the interview, we talk about the book that appeared two years ago, actually, just when the COVID lockdown started in March or April 2020. And back then, I wanted already to talk to Gary about it. And then I didn't receive the book because the warehouses were closed and all kind of stuff. So finally, I was then able a few months ago to get that book. Um, and um, Holy Russia is the title of the book, The Return of Holy Russia to be complete. And we will also speak about that, of course, um, in difficult times uh, regarding that matter also. So um, let's welcome Gary right away. Uh, before I launch the talk with him, I let you know that, as always, as you are used to by now, um, we will have a little break in the middle to listen to some more music. Music, actually, that Gary mentions, not the music, but yeah, the piece of music he mentions in the middle. So listen carefully. You might already then know what's going to come. Completely different from what you just heard type of music. So let's go and meet Gary in London, where I interviewed him in about 40 minutes, 4-0, 40 minutes. I'll be back with a piece of classical music. I say so much. Meet Gary and enjoy. Here comes the interview. It's a great return we have here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast tonight. Uh, we have a guest with us here who has been already with us. Well, it's over a year ago now, and we've tried to do this new interview for quite some weeks and different tribulations that happened. But finally, we get together. Gary Lackman, it's a great pleasure to have you on the Thoughts Hermit podcast again. Hi there. Oh, hello, Rudolph. It's a pleasure uh, to be on once again. And yes, as I said, um, after all these trials and tribulations, we've finally come through. So uh, finally made managed it. to do that. Exactly. And interestingly enough, uh, we have two subjects here today. And I think we start with a book that 
I believe is the is the latest that you have released. Uh, it's called Dreaming Ahead of Time. Uh, that's your your youngest child, right? Isn't it? Mm. Yes. Yeah, that came out um, uh, earlier this year, and I wrote it over the first lockdown here in the spring. Well, around two years ago, twenty twenty. Which and this, it's a this, book this. that's centered around um, the phenomena of precognitive dreams, dreams in which bits and pieces of the future turn up. Um, I, I, my own experiences with that, and also um, those of others. And uh, it started. I, I gave a talk here in London at um, the Brompton Cemetery. Uh, there's, mm -hmm. you know, London's full of these wonderful cemeteries. And there's this group called uh, um, um, A Curious Invitation, and they do these site-specific, you know, events. Mm -hmm. And they had a series of talks, the theme, The Borderlands of Sleep. And I gave a talk about hypnagogia, which is this mm -hmm. in-between state, this liminal state between sleeping and waking, which we all experience twice a day, you know, uh, right. when we wake, go to sleep whenever we go to sleep and we wake up whenever we wake up. They say um, it's a very creative and, uh, moment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry? They say it's a very creative moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, well, this is that's a, there's a history of this. Many, many people yeah. have, have uh, understood the, uh, as you say, the sort of liberating uh, uh, condition of this, this state, because you're sort, you're sort of in two states at the same time. You're you're awake, but you can all you can also watch dreams start to take place, or you know, there's a variety of different experiences. You know, you see, some people see faces, they hear they hear sounds. I, I tend to be quite auditory, um, right. and I mean, maybe because I was in music and all, I, I don't know, whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, other people, they they have visions and variety of different things like that. Um, um, but um, at the end of the talk, or to sort of fill it out a bit, I added a few um, accounts of precognitive dreams. And the reason I did that is that uh, these sort of precognitive experiences tend to happen, or this, this um, liminal state, this hypnagogic state, tends to be one in which these sorts of things um, uh, happen. Uh, not only precognition, but that's one that t does tend to happen in there. There's other, you know, tele telepathy, whatever. There's no guarantee, but mm. yeah, there's there's enough research to, su to suggest that uh, in those states, these things um, are more likely to take place. And I just said at the end of the talk, if you want to see if this is true, all you have to do is start paying attention to your dreams and start writing them down, because that's how I discovered that. Uh, you know, <laughs> I never thought this, you know, I, I never wanted this to happen or sort of tried to make it happen. It just, right. I, I just noticed that it did. And this, this is going back 42 years. I started recording my dreams in 1980, but I, I, I gave this talk in uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, the next day, when I went on to Twitter, um, someone had who had been at the talk uh, had tweeted And she said, OMG, and exclamation points, it's true. <laughs> and this guy, I went to the talk and he said, if I just, if I just wrote down my dreams, you know, uh, the, I would I notice that I dreamt the future and it's true. And, and what, what she had dreamt was that, um, you know, here in England have these strange animals called hedgehogs um, yeah, sure. and um, they get run over often. So she, uh, in the dream, she picked a hedgehog up off the street, off the road, and put it on the pavement where it would be safe. 
And when she went on to Twitter that morning after attending the talk, the first thing she saw was the post about how to protect the hedgehogs (laughs) from getting run over. So she didn't actually, you know, walk out the door and pick up a hedgehog. But the first thing she saw um, in her, the media by which, you know, she gained her information was, was about that. And this is, this is a theme that's the case with, with this um, phenomenon of these sort of future dreams. And, um, I should, um, just point out a couple things before we get started on this is that they're not premonitory, uh, you know, they're, they're not dreams mm-hmm. in which you sort of wake up and you know, something's going to happen. There's, there's a lot of accounts of those, yeah. uh, or predictions or prophecies, I mean, these things are all cognate and they're all, they're all related. And uh, what I say in the, in the book and in the talks I've been giving is that the, the, the sort of future dreams that we all hear about, or they fall under the two Ds, it's disasters and the Darby, which is a, a race. <laughs> so we know about the ones in which people seem to have predicted um, some horrible disaster. Um, yeah. The one I talk about in the book is this one in uh, Wales in Aberfan in the 1960s when Hmm. a coal slip, you know, came down the hillside and and engulfed the town. And Hmm. uh, it turned out that many people had had dreams about precisely that happening, Um, you know, the the night before, whatever, you know, and so on and so on. And then there's uh, several accounts about um, sort of... um, premonitory uh, uh, pre-echoes of 9-11 happening and so on and so on. Mm. Or the other one is somebody dreams, you know, the winners at the races. This is the, the famous account is fellow in the 40s. I think in my, John Godley, he was later made Lord Kilbracken, but he dreamt a number of, you know, winners at the race and so on and so on. He himself wasn't a punter, meaning he didn't, you know, yeah, yeah. go to the races himself, but his friends benefited by this and so on. But we all hear about those. But the kind that I've experienced, and if you do the research, if you if you spend several months reading everything you can find about precognition, and especially precognitive dreams, you'll discover that yes, these these other big ones are the ones everybody knows about. But actually, they're they're rare. The the, the common, you know, main you know, standard sort of precognitive dream is tends to be about un- undramatic events. Sure, um, that's why maybe you're the kind of dreams that if, them, right? Well, if, if they weren't precognitive, you wouldn't bother. The only person who might be interested in them is your therapist, maybe. Just meaning that, you know, they're not, they're not particularly, they're not, they're not the big archetypal, you know, dreams where you, you come yeah. away with this feeling that you've been in, in the encounter with the numinous or something. It's just sort of like, mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, and I, I, yeah. I mean, I could pick up the book. I, I don't have it right at my hand and I, I can read yeah. off, you know, any number of them. And it's sort of, but how this all got started for me, it was that in 1980, it's a long time ago now, um, I um, read a book called An Experiment with Time. Mm-hmm. It was written by a fellow named J.W. Dunn, who's an aeronautics engineer. And he discovered just by chance, it was, it was, the book was uh, published in the 1920s, uh, and this was the period when I was reading indiscriminately, you know, just gorging on uh, any paranormal and occult and mystical kind right. of stuff, just in, in absorbing right. as much of it as I can in, in huge, you know, uh, you know, gulps of it. And I read this one and uh, Dunn just came by chance to discover that it's in pieces of the future. And when I say the future, I don't mean that you're hovering over 
this vast plateau of the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see with Nostradamus, like whatever, something, it's your own yeah. personal future. It's what you are going to encounter, either newspapers you'll read or today it's you know what you'll see on twitter or social media or if you still watch television on television and things like that um don discovered that uh this was happening to him and the very first dream that he that he writes about was that um he was having an argument with someone about the time strangely enough so his first future dream is about time itself Mm -hmm. um and uh, he, uh, he says it's 4.30 in the morning and, and um, the other person says, no, 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 it isn't. He says, yes, I'll prove it. And he pulls out his watch and his pocket watch there. It says, lo and behold, it's 4.30. And then he wakes up. And being an inquisitive fellow, he thought, I wonder what time it actually is. So he goes over and pulls out his pocket watch. This is back in the day when you have a pocket watch out of his trousers. And it had stopped at 4.30. It stopped. Okay. He thought it had stopped in the afternoon. He noticed that it had stopped, had forgot to wind it. And this was the nagging thought that led to his dream. Subconscious. So gay, gay, gave, yeah, some unconscious. So as if, yeah. I, I don't know if I, is, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, who winds their watch anymore these days? So maybe this was a concern that was, but, you know, he, he's, he's, he's trying to be a ra- rather reasonable, rational fellow. Think, okay, well, mm. what may have, because co- it's all this cause, I mean, this, just to sidetrack, it's this kind of causal. Ah, this had happened, ergo, I have had this dream. So it's this kind of causal kind of thing. Out yeah. of all the myriad yeah. sorts of things that happen to you in the day, you just decided, yes, I will dream about it. Yeah. that I didn't rewind my watch. But in any case, so he gives it a wine, puts it back in his trouser, goes back to sleep. And whenever he wakes up later on, a few hours later, he thinks, okay, I'll have to find out what the real time is. And because I didn't adjust it at 4.30 in the morning, I just gave it a thing. It's ticking away. but, But he discovers that it's at the right time. So that when he had given it its twist to get the the you know the works going again it was at 4 30 so somehow the dream had told him that it was the correct time and and in advance he was doing what you know he was doing in the dream and then it's a series of other dreams and i mean if you ever get a chance it's one of the classic book classic books Uh about this and i and and and, and, Mm -hmm. i mean dunn develops a whole philosophy about this that was quite quite in vogue in the 20s and 30s. Um, people like H.G. Wells, uh, right. the original time traveler, the original time machine um, inventor. Um, in a later book of his, of Wells, The Shape of Things to Come, he employs um, Dunn's theme about dreams being able to see the future, but he, he has it, it's more, you know, um, Nostradamus-like predicting very, Right. Very far future right. events. Right. And if you know the right. film, the film, this wonderful film, Deco film in the 30s with Raymond Massey and all that's like of fantastic, yes. you know, yeah. Yeah. Sir Arthur yeah. Bliss yeah. soundtrack and that this is like, you know, it's all going to happen. But it's not time travel with the time machine. It's time travel through through dreams. Yeah. And then J.B. Priestley yeah. is an English, another English writer who nobody knows John, these days. Yeah, J.B. Priestley. He's very, very yeah, interested well. in the sorts of things, wrote a series of plays having to deal with time. And, and, and Inspector so Dun- comes the famous play, right? I'm sorry? And the inspector calls. Inspe- an inspector play. comes, and then, but oh, yeah, there's yeah, one yeah, called yeah. Time in the Conways. Right, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have been here before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was also influenced by um, Uspensky, you know, the 
Yeah, question. sure. Mm-hmm. Esoteric philosopher who's most known as an exponent of Gurdjieff, but he was, was a brilliant yeah. thinker in his own right. And he had all these theories about time and recurrence and six dimensions of time. So Priestley yeah. was very attuned to this sort of thing. But um, any case, so I read Dunn's book and just as I had suggested to people who had come to my talk saying, if you want to see if this actually happens, just write down your dreams. I, that's what Dunn had said in his book. And I said, okay, I'll start doing that. And lo and behold, it was true. And as I say in the book, the very first future dream that I had was of me playing a red guitar. <laughs> now, I didn't have a red guitar and I didn't know anyone who had a red guitar. And this was 1980 in New York. So this is like the punk scene and yeah. new wave and all that. And I'm a musician then. Um, so I have a guitar and I play guitars often. So it's not on unu- It wouldn't be unusual for me to dream about playing a, re- a guitar, but it just happened to be yeah. a bright red guitar. And I was through just going out, walking around with a friend. We met somebody else and met somebody else. And I wound up at somebody's flat. And I'm sitting there and somebody says, here, man, check this out. And he hands me a guitar and I start and strumming and saying, oh, this is a very bright red guitar. Uh, this is quite like the guitar in my dream last yeah. night <laughs> that I dutifully wrote down. I said, okay, okay, okay. So the next one that I recorded was um, a bit more exciting. I dreamt that I was in a, a very intimate setting uh, with the woman Um Oh my God, are they girls? And I guess there were women in the 20s. Yeah, there were women uh, <laughs> uh, at the time on the scene. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know her, but, uh, you know, I would have liked to. Yeah. And then I had this dream in which we, we, we were in, in such an intimate setting. And I, I chalked that up to Freudian, you know, wish fulfillment. Oh. <laughs> um, but then again, through chance and series of chance events, I, I wound up in this intimate setting with this, you know, so that, that wish came came true <laughs> so uh and then so after that i just i just i just recorded and recorded over the years yeah i, I mean I, I scores i don't want to say you know dozens it's more than dozens it's not maybe maybe not hundreds but scores you know so yeah, yeah. um and in the book i i've selected in the ones that seem to me the most um how should we say it uh indicative of and my approach is um I would say phenomenological, which is a mouthful, but, or you could say it's a naturalist. I'm not trying to explain this. I'm just trying to describe my experience of this and to record the experiences. And so, and this, you know, I have a chapter, this general sort of overview of the history of dreams, let's say, or the history of our attempts to understand dreams and the nature of dreams. The central central character of the nature of dreams is a symbolic, dreams speak in a symbolic language. And again, it's not necessarily, oh, let me get my Jung out Mm. or my whatever occult encyclopedia or what what does that mean? It's symbolic, but it's symbolic related to your own life. Um, it's, it's, It's centrally about you. I mean, at least, I mean, this is what I've come to understand. It's centrally about you. You have the big dreams, which it's about you, but it's about you in a larger kind of sense. But mm-hmm. um, uh, just as done, he, he, he dreamt what he was going to read in the newspaper or okay. 
what he was going to bump into walking around in the street. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not reeling off all the accounts because if you want them, you can, you can find them sure. in the book. This and, and the same with myself. I mean, I just have, I'm, uh, I, I, get, I can just top of my head. I, I had a dream where I, I saw little frogs coming out of the floor in my, my flat. And then later that day, when I went to pick up my sons at school, I saw their teacher walking towards me and he had a jar and there was sort of water in it. And I asked them what it was and he said it was frog spawn. Um, they had collected it that day, you know, um, uh-huh. uh, on, on their adventure run or their nature. Right. Um, I, 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 I dream that um, someone's banging at a wall and smashing a wall down. And then later that day I speak with my parents and they told me that they had to take a wall out of their house to deal with termites. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's all this sort of thing where it's like, and, and, um, or it's not, it's not only in dreams. I mean, there's one, there's a couple waking state precognitive uh, events. Uh, one is where I'm, um, I'm listening to music. I'm, I'm a, I'm a classical music fan these days. And I listen to BBC, uh, radio three here. I was listening to it, but I had a sudden urge to want to hear Beethoven's pastoral symphony you know, the sixth symphony and, um, just about to get up to get the CD. I still have CDs. They're over here. You can see them. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, okay, just let me wait one sec. Let's see what they play. And the, and, and the, you know, the presenter played Beethoven's pastoral symphony. (laughs) So it was like literally seconds. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, bang. (laughs) It's on. I mean, today streaming, you could just do this from wherever and you can hear it whenever you want, but even that. So, or I'm, I'm, I'm walking in, I'm, I'm, I don't live too far from Hampstead village here in North London. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm walking on Rosalind Hill, which is there, and Rupert yeah. Sheldrake, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, more, morphogenetic feels, mm-hmm. uh, fame, and so on and so on. He lives in that neighborhood, and then, you know, he's someone who's written about precognition, a variety of other paranormal, course, yeah. you know, the the feeling that someone's like, you know, watching you from behind and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm walking down the hill, and I'm thinking, oh, I, it strikes me, yes, oh yeah, I remember, yeah, Rupert Sheldrake lives around here. Wouldn't it be funny if I saw him? And whatever, I don't know how many nanoseconds after, after thinking that he is walking up the hill at me. So again, over the years, I've been just, I just pay attention to these sorts of things and I'm not claiming any particular, um, credit or superpower, but it's just something I've noticed. And all I did was do what Dunn had suggested was write the dreams down. I mean, how they happen, I I have no idea. Um, I, I, I'm, again, I'm not really interested in, explaining them. I know many people, um, say following Jung and a variety of other, you know, uh, sort of scientific attempts to understand mm-hmm. this, bring in quantum, you know, whatever. Yeah. And there's positrons who can go back in time and all that. I mean, that I'm sure they do, but I, I don't just the top immediately my own existential kind of felt experiences. I just don't know what my positrons, if they're even my positrons have to yeah. do with this. But yeah, yeah. the more, I mean, th- there's that side of it. And then, as I say in the book, it's a general, okay, the, the precognitive dream experience is the sort of the, 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 as you say, the sort of prompt. But then I have mm-hmm. a general sort of look at dreams in themselves and then time itself. 
I mean, because precognitive dreams, you bring together these two mysterious sorts of things, the mystery sure. of dreams, yes. speak in a weird language, which we don't immediately understand, and come from a source, which we don't know. And yeah. then time, which seems to be something that, oh, yes, we all know what time is. But as St. Augustine said, oh, yes, if you don't ask me the question, I know the answer. But once you actually want me to you know, articulate very explicitly what time is or define it, then I'm, I'm, I'm at sea. It'd be difficult. And we're all like yeah. that, you know. Yeah, sure. I mean, we talk about sure. time as a river, time flows, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. But where's the banks of time? I mean, we understand, you got to use that metaphor, a river has banks. Yeah. There's no such thing as yeah. a river without banks. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, uh, yeah. Even an ocean, you know, I mean, yeah. hey, you could, it, if, it just would be endlessness and then it, it just it just collapses as a metaphor. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Or if you want yeah. the other one, which is, you know, Andrew Marvel, like the, the chariot, you know, time swinging chariot coming towards us. Well, chariots move along roads and there's there's pavements. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which we should put the hedgehogs on so that they don't get run over by the chariots. <laughs> um, chariots move a lot of these things. But where, where are the pavements, you know, flanking the chariot of time? And it, again, it, it, we have the sense that it, it moves in some way, but I would think that's more about processes taking place within yeah. our, our experience. And then we, we, somehow, we somehow posit there's this stuff, there's this medium called time, in which the processes take place, but maybe you know, maybe there isn't anything like that. And say maybe maybe we're maybe we're baff- maybe maybe we're hypnotized by by language as Wittgenstein. Oh, so as not you, to say the processes you, don't take place, but you can't. You wouldn't think of traveling in process. You know, this is what Colin Wilson, the, the writer that I'm you know sure. uh, been very influenced by, and yeah, I absolutely. talk about some of his ideas about time as well. Yes. We, we do seem do. to have this inherent capacity to step outside of time. Although we don't have we don't have it at our command just yet, yeah. but we do seem to have these sorts of experiences where that kind of constant onward push of either the flow of time or the chariot, you know, it's either time running away from us or it coming at us. So either yeah. way, it creates yeah. a sense yeah. of anxiety. And, and but then there's or the moments. relative the relative feeling of time, like Hoffmannsthal, the, Aust- the mm. Austrian uh, writer, wrote mm. in the Rosenkavalier. You as you like uh, as you like uh, classical music, you might know that mm. uh, time is a, is a strange thing. Sometimes you don't feel it at all, but. W- then suddenly only feel time, he says. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's very true. When something happens in your life that's very marking, a death or you lose mm-hmm. an important person or so, then you suddenly think about time in a very different way than when you just live along true, with true, it. True. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think it's, you know, it's very much a factor of, con- of consciousness. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when yeah. you're bored or, <laughs> or if yeah. you're in pain... Yeah, sure. Uh, seconds go by, at, at, you know, uh, uh, glacially. Yeah. Um, but if you're happy and you're really excited about something, hours can go by, and it seems like, oh my god, I've only—is that really? Absolutely. Have two hours gone by now? I, I thought this was only five minutes or something. Yeah. Like that. So it has a lot to do with our own consciousness, and um, but, I mean, I you, guess you that's what—that's what, what Bergson called duration, which is our, our experience of time, rather than. This quantified TikTok, yes, and I, sure, I don't mean sure. I don't mean the social media app. I'm, I mean you know the yeah. quality, <laughs> uh, kind of time. Yes, absolutely. When you uh, when the subtitle of your book speaks about synchronicity and coincidence, well, 
most people would take that for the same thing, but you make a distinction between the two. Can you can you maybe just say what your well, synchronicity is, is meaningful coincidence? I mean, there's coincidences uh-huh. and then there's meaningful coincidences. I mean, I, I'll just give an example. Um, a couple of examples I give in the book um, um, a few years back it was at dinner with you know a group of friends and we got the bill and it came to 123 pounds and 45 P. So one, two, yeah. three, four, five. Three, four, five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not particularly yeah. meaningful, but it's like, hey, look at that. You know, uh, how often yeah, does that yeah, happen? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Uh, at the at the end of a day when I, I'm writing something and I, I, I do a word count to see where we are. And I came to 6,666. Okay. Um, so, I mean... Okay, one, two, three, four, five. You, all you have to know is it's the first, you know, you know, series of you know n- n- numbers, and then but you know the six, six, six with an extra six kind of thing. Oh, you kind of have to have some background and know. Oh, go that relates to the book of yeah, yeah, or sure. To sure. Uh, uh, people we know, Crowley, and you know all that kind of thing. And I, yeah. I put that up on Twitter and said, uh oh, you know, <laughs> sort of, you know, but, you know, but but then there's other ones like. Um, I have I have some anecdotes from when I worked with this bookshop in Los Angeles. This place called the Bodhi Tree, which was right. uh, in its yeah, day sure. was yeah. the yeah. most prominent metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies. Kind of. Yeah, and um, I was working. Uh, well, yeah, uh, I should say. Oh, yeah, yeah. So some kind of music going on, the new age music you're playing. Sure. And um, somebody asks, you know, what what is it? And I think it was called Alpine Alpine Blizzard. And as soon as I heard that they said it was Alpine Blizzard, I looked and realized I was about to send a notification to uh, a customer named Snow. <laughs> that was their last name. It was Snow. It was okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, so it's just the kind of thing. It was like you know, okay. So it's yeah. like, does that mean anything? It's just weird. It, it happens. Yeah, it and doesn't really change your life. There's other classic. <laughs> there's other classic ones. I mean, you mentioned seeing Kessler back here. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, in his, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. uh, 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 I don't know where he is right now, but um, yeah, in the middle, yeah. and he had, he he did this book, The Challenge of Chance, with um, Alistair Hardy, and uh, I, forget, I forget the other fellow, but it's a, uh, you know, it's mm. it's all about. Or he did a book called The Roots of Coincidence, and he tells exactly. all these wonderful stories. And um, but I mean, it slides into synchronicity, which is meaningful. Which I said, it's the sort of thing that has it's it's like it's a indubitably meaningful to you just as a dream you know you can you when you when it, the penny drops as they say here you know oh yeah now i yeah. see yeah. what that is saying and it hits you yeah. and that's when it clicks and you realize this is oh my god this is some some intelligent commentary on my life on my own life you know yeah. not 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 a necessarily a prediction about things in general and what you make it, it's like that I mean, the one, I mean, an example, an example I give in the book is, is, um, well, okay, well, let me, um, okay, well, I'll, I'll go an example from my own life and then I'll go back to Kessler to give this other king, which is a kind of crossover Mm -hmm. experience. But just before COVID hit, um, back in, um, I forget, I think it was like the spring of 2019 or something like that. No, it was the fall of 2020 in China and here it was spring well, of 2020. No, 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 no. The fall of 2019. I mean, I mean, when, I, when I was giving this talk, when I was giving the talk some, right. sometime in, right. in, in uh, 2019, it was before, before. I mean, I, I guess of course. COVID was like COVID, COVID hit in March year, so it started. It started to like start happening like February or March in 2020. Yeah. Here. And uh, I think it was a little bit early, a little bit before that I gave a talk. Any case. 
uh, I was giving a talk at the Theosophical Society here in London about Colin Wilson, who I've mentioned, this uh, writer who's been very right. influential in my own work. Oh, yes. And it was about um, his early book called The Outsider, which is a study of you know, alienated geniuses and, uh, you know, uh, you know, with which Very we can only book of his. I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, but on my way to give the talk, I realized there was something I needed and I was passing the local market and I thought, Oh, I'll just pop in and get this thing. I, I, I need it. So I got what I needed. And I'm in the queue to pay for it. And I look over at the magazine rack and the magazines are so, organized, stacked, that uh, uh, the cover of Vogue, all I can see that it's Vogue, and then there's the title of, like, the lead article. So I, I can't see anything more than that. So this is, like, band. You know, there's a magazine there, another magazine there. Mm -hmm. so there's a little band with Vogue, and then the title of the lead article, and the title lead article is The Outsider, <laughs> about which I'm on my way to give a talk. But I don't have enough time to think, go over there and say, what? You know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so I, I take, I take a photo of my phone, and then I post it on Twitter, and then I talk about it at the talk, and then I'm coming home later, and I think, oh, actually, you know, there's something else I need in that market. Let me go in, and while I'm there, I'm going to go take a look at that copy of Vogue and mm -hmm. see what that was about, because mm -hmm. it couldn't possibly be about Colin Wilson's book, The Outsider. Sure. Um, but it wasn't there anymore. They had changed the magazines. So they put in the the new issue. Yeah. So had I not popped in when I did on my way to give a talk about The Outsider, I would not have seen mm -hmm. as if waiting for me <laughs> to, to see it there, The Outsider on on in vogue of all places so uh yeah these so these are the that that that's a meaningful coincidence yeah sure i am yeah. on my way to give a talk about that somehow i don't know who what whom it what agency was responsible for arranging things so this would happen but i i, I somehow you know, impromptu just black popped brother. in and saw yeah. this. Oh man, I yeah. the black brother. Maybe that's the white, whatever, the, the good guy, the bad guy, the, the black brother, whatever, just they're, they're the guys who interfere with everything. The other yeah, ones are the ones exactly. that for me give you a little tap on the shoulder and say, ah, uh, do not spare. Yeah. <laughs> You're not exactly. alone. Exactly. Um, and, um, you know, so there's, but getting back to Arthur Kessler, he, he collected, uh, many, many d different coincidences, but um, this one uh, type he called the library angel and writers and researchers, you know, um, people work in libraries and things like that probably have had these sorts of experiences. I, I know they've happened to me. And it's um, when something you're looking for just you know, serendipitously suddenly appears, pops, appears yeah. when you, you were not able to find it. And he tells the story of um, the writer Rebecca West, who was researching the Nuremberg trials. Mm -hmm. And she discovered in the, in the London Library, it's a, a wonderful place called London Library. And um, she discovered they were arranged in such a way it was like impossible to find anything. They're just arranged in some arbitrary kind of way, not alphabetical, whatever. She mm -hmm. couldn't find what she was looking for through however they had them, you know, uh, organized. And in despair, you know, she's just, you know, a librarian walks by and she just stops the librarian and says, you know, I've been trying, I've been here for hours and trying to do this. I can't find anything, blah, blah, blah. They can be anywhere. 
And she like reached up to one volume of them and pulled them down and opened it and said, oh, Jesus, there it is. <laughs> that's exactly what she was looking for. You know, she didn't say Jesus, but that's what I would have said. Like, so there it is. Like that, that's exactly what she was looking for. And Kessler tells of a similar experience where at the London Library as well for him. Uh, this is back in the 70s. Um, when he was he was being sent by one of the London newspapers to cover the uh, uh, Bobby Fischer Boris Baskey um, chess match in yeah, Reykjavik, sure. and Kessler was a great um, uh, chess fan, and uh, you know he's lifelong uh, player, but he hadn't kept up with you know recent developments in the game, and his sort of knowledge, the background knowledge of Iceland was you know probably needed a bit of a brush up. So mm-hmm. he thought, okay, I'll go to the London library and see what I can dig up before I go. And where should I start? Should I start with chess or should I start with Iceland? Mm-hmm. So he went over to the chess section. The first book he saw was chess in Iceland <laughs> and, Iceland- <laughs> and Icelandic literature by someone named Willard Fisk. So yeah, there's all okay. stories like, I mean, there's all, there's many, many stories like that. So, I mean, that, you wouldn't that's, expect that that's kind of like, okay, somehow, <laughs> Whatever, some radar, you know, is out there yeah, working yeah, yeah, and is yeah, leading yeah. you to, you know, this. And, you know, so similar experiences like that. Um, and um, we, we all have them. You know, I mean, there's something that have I, you I, heard, I think have you heard about, not, you know. Have you heard about the technique, which apparently is a shamanic technique in with North American shamans, that they try to make you, if you have, have fear of something to happen, or if something is menacing you, that they try to make you happen it, it, in a dream so that it will not happen in real life? Have you heard about oh. that? Uh, well, similar sorts of things. I know in Tibetan Buddhism that there's that there's that element too, where they have okay. there's, um, there's a dream yoga. Yeah, you practice Nidra, right? um, yeah. where you, you know, well, basically it's sort of like lucid dreaming where you, you, mm-hmm. you, you maintain consciousness in the dream state yeah. and do you, you realize while you're in the dream state that it is a dream. And this also has the collateral benefit that, aha, well, my waking states are just as illusory as, you know, the dream states as well. But of course. yes, you confront, you know, you confront the fears and all that. And this is, this is basically doing stuff that you're going to have to do when you're in the bardo. Yeah, um, yeah, kind yeah. of ahead of time. It's, it's sort of like you know. I, I guess it's not quite the same thing. I mean, the Christian doesn't quite have the same thing. But you, you know, if you if you if you, you can shave off time in purgatory, I guess if, if you sort of do the right things now, uh, but it may not be exactly the same thing as in Tibetan Buddhism. But, but I, I didn't know specifically about the shamanistic practices you mentioned, but yeah. they did seem yeah. they sounded similar to this. So, this but again, similar. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. This is one of the things I'm, I'm not trying to do anything with this. This is just something that I've been aware of and notice happening for yeah. four decades, you know, of, of my life. And so um, not to say you can't. And I'm, I'm aware of a variety of different practices. You know, I mean, one of the things you can do and I do talk about it briefly in the book is again about the hypnagogic state, which is. Yes. It, it's it can it tends to be auto symbolic or self symbolic in the sense that the images um, or as, as I often hear, it's it's voices or, you know, sentences being said or something. Um, they may immediately seem just confused and chaotic and, and not having any particular meaning, but they actually do. They, they're they're, they're mm. s- symbolic of the state of 
whatever you were thinking about at the time you're falling asleep or some emotion you're feeling or even some physical sensation. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of test this. Um, so if you, as you drift into sleep, if you keep a thought in mind, even it's the sort of thing like, yes, I'm falling asleep now, but I want to stay awake enough to pay attention to the hypnagogic images that come up because it's, it's, you know, it's not easy to do because most of the just boom, we go in, but if we're asleep, if you're waking up, you're, you're awake and it's sort of, you know, trying to find a way to hover in between, but you can, I mean, if you're able to take a nap in the afternoon, that's probably even the best sort of situation. Um, yeah. I, the, yeah. when, when I am able to do that, I, I can somehow hover in that state. Um, yeah. and, and why are uh, more easily than when I'm falling asleep? Cause somehow when my body is trained to, Hey man, why do you want to stay awake? You know, this is time to go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean yeah. 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 the afternoon sure. is kind sure. of like, Oh, well, we don't always do this all the time. So this is a bit sure. strange. So yeah, I'll go with it. But you know, yeah, late yeah, at night, yeah, my body's yeah. saying, no, 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 it's just go to sleep. Of course. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, 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 so, sure. And, and you have to, you know, and actually uh, people who, who research in this area, they split hairs between the hypnagogic, which is leading you down into sleep. Hypnosis, sleep, yes, is sure. Greek word, but that's Going the guide mm-hmm. is leading you down. Mm-hmm. Hypnopomp is when you're rising yes. up out of the sleep. And so it's like pomp and circumstance. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. a session. Yeah. So it's like, or a so, pomp. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like one, one leads down and one leads up, but yeah. And the thing is, if you can, it's, it's preferable if you can linger in the morning, waking up rather than, um, hmm. uh, try sure. to stay awake as you fall asleep. Because before you master that, you'll have many, many, many sleepless nights. But the other way, if you can, you know, set your alarm clock or the equivalent um, yeah. a little bit earlier bit than earlier. you usually do, say mm-hmm. half hour or, you know, whatever, and then drift back into sleep. Yeah. So, and then the alarm will ring again. Yes. You can be in one yeah. of the shallow kind of REM states. And that's, at least for me, when that happens, I tend to remember those dreams more often. And yeah. yeah. Often yeah. there'll be a precognitive element, but it's, it's again... Yeah. Uh, this is the thing. Practically everybody who's researched this and written about it says that there's, um, again, and I don't mean to say this to diminish their importance, but they say this odd thing about it is that you want, like, why did I have a precognitive dream about that? It's, it's, there's a few in my book where, where you can see, yes, there's some, mm. um, I should say, you know, uh, Something linked yeah. to emotional or psychological, yeah. you know, development, mm. blah, blah, blah. But most of them are like, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I, I have a dream where I'm, I'm looking through these kind of crosshairs, like many, 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 many fine lines or something like that. And then later in the mm-hmm. day, I'm walking here in North London and I, um, there's a, the Regent's Canal that passes through yeah. parts of it. And I'm, I stop there and I look over it and I realize I'm looking through a spider web. <laughs> which is, is exactly like all of the sure, sure. things like that. And it's yeah, like, that's yeah. fantastic. But I'm trying yeah. to think, I mean, why Jungian or yeah. a therapist might say, well, you know, why do you think you're unconscious or whatever might've directed you? And so I haven't the slightest idea. Do I, do I feel like I'm trapped in a spider? But I, I don't like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm not trying yeah, to resist yeah. that, but I'm, I'm just saying it doesn't, it doesn't like bang hit me. Whereas like just mm. the, the oddness of it, the temporal dislocation, seems to be what it's about, you know, as yeah. if to say, you know, um, that in itself 
you know, yeah. Yeah. here's a little yeah. shakeup, you know, here's, you know, yes, you know, the regular time moves and, you know, the arrow of time entropy and all that, that's, that's okay for our everyday, you know, experiences and yeah. dealing with things, yeah. but yeah. fundamentally and basically in the wider picture of the world is such that that, that doesn't cover all the bases right. <laughs> and right. there's stranger okay. things out there. And that's what I, that's what I come away with it. It's always great to talk to Gary Lackman. And uh, this night when we did that interview, he was in a particularly good and talkative mood. So I hope you get and enjoy all that information um, that he gave us. Um, there's much more to come. And especially also in the second part, we're going to talk about his other book, The Return of Holy Russia. So don't miss that. Before we go into the second part, as usual now, some music and you remember what he was talking about in the interview? What music? No? Well, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, the Pastoral Symphony. And yes, uh, there's again, as it has happened before, some classical music here on the Thought Hermes podcast. And we're going to hear, we're going to hear the third and fourth movement from that symphony. The symphony has five movements, very exceptional for that classical period. But no worries, that's not going to last half an hour. It's going to be, the movements are rather short. It's going to be about eight minutes, those two movements together. Actually, it's, the, it's a natural description when a thunderstorm is slowly coming in, and that's the, the third movement. And we hear it coming, we hear it growl, the thunders, etc. And then movement four directly into it is the thunderstorm itself. And how it ends in peace. Okay, so that will be Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, Sixth Symphony for those who are interested. Movement three and four, and after that we'll return to Gary Lackman. And as I said, music is very eclectic here today. The third piece of music that we are going to hear is called The Great Surrender. That's after the interview. It is by Krista Linder, Krista Linder, who offered a whole album of his music, who is, he is a award-winning movie uh, music writer. So uh, you really, we should all be proud that he is one of those who is a listener of the podcast and gifted a whole album to us to listen to. So here is a new track from that album, The Great Surrender. That track is called by Krista Linder. And once again, we can be happy and proud to have his music on here. But before that now, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, and then we go to Gary Lackman. After that, The Great Surrender. And after that, I will come back and tell you who will be with me next week and with you, hopefully, as well, of course. Let the stage be free for Ludwig van Beethoven.
It looks to me like um, uh, you had some f uh, synchronicity or precognition, I don't know, when you decided to write the other book that we're going to talk uh, <laughs> here about, because um, you actually, I wanted to have the interview done about that book, The Return of Holy Russia, much, much uh, longer ago, but then... Uh, COVID hit, we just mentioned that. And the book just appeared in March or April 2020, I believe. So just mm -hmm. immediately after the first lockdown. And for that reason, uh, your your publisher's warehouse closed down and they never sent me the review copy. And that's why that interview did not happen. So mm -hmm. and then now, of course, with all that has happened lately, I said, well, come on, can you can you please now two years later, send me finally that book? <laughs> and they were kind enough to do that and um, and when I read that book The Return of Holy Russia of course it's like if you had felt the urge to write that knowing that what was going to happen I don't think you did but um, um, what, no, what, I, what, I, I, I what, can't say I was predicting anything but you know, no um, no what, what why did, why did you well maybe you should first say a little bit about the book itself and what it describes yeah. because well it's uh, return it's yeah it's strange it, it, i wound up writing basically a history of russia from the point of view of um sort of say the spiritual or mystical or religious elements in mm -hmm. in, in its history uh yeah. put it that way and um i in a previous book dark star rising magic and yeah. power in the age of trump about this sort of seemingly strange occult politics uh there you go uh around around trump uh, his campaign and then the early days of his administration with the alt-right you know supposedly somehow using chaos magic on the internet to help him get elected and mm. um steve bannon saying he was a reader of julius evola and evola's you know far-right yeah. um, esoteric te uh, you know, philosopher and the alt-right at the time. Funnily enough, we never hear anything about the alt-right anymore. They're, they're, they're no longer newsworthy, sure. uh, but they were you know, on the cover of magazines at the time. And, um, but in the book, I also um, had a couple chapters about developments in Russia. Um, mostly because that was the, sort of the alt right Evolog connection, because there was a fellow in Russia, this, this, um, this uh, fellow named Alexander Dugan, yeah. who's um, very, you know, has, has had uh, one of the strangest trajectories, I would say, in, in contemporary politics. He started out as a, you know, the 1980s um, anti-Soviet dissident punk. He got arrested for singing anti-Soviet songs and all that. But then with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, he realized he was a Soviet man. And then he went through many sort of, well, what I call this kind of quick change, you know, artist routines, a political kind of thing where he's like this right. and that and that and that. But it all tends to be rather far right and totalitarian. And he cherry picks from... Mm you know, national socialism and Mussolini's fascism and Stalin and Mao and, you know, all the good bits. Uh, yeah. And he Velcros them together uh, yeah. to, you know, create what he calls the fourth political theory. And But the strange thing is, like, he went from being somebody, you know, he says he's on the radical center and he's, you know, he, he, he said this whole Velcro is very postmodern. He puts, you know, antithetical mm -hmm. things together and to, to create some dramatic kind of effects or whatever. But he's... He wound up being a lecturer on geopolitics to the, you know, the chief of staff at the at the Kremlin and all this kind of thing. And he's at exactly. different times supposed to have had, you know, I don't know, 
access to Putin's ear, to put it that way, or maybe access to somebody who had access to it and, mm-hmm. you, know, mm-hmm. you know, friend, comrade of a comrade of a comrade or something. <laughs> but um, so I had a lot of material left over after uh, that book was finished. Yeah. And I come across an article about um, Putin in 2014, around the same time as the annexation of Crimea, um, him giving his regional governors a reading list. And yeah. on the reading list were books by people, uh, Russian philosophers I, I knew, uh, Nikolai Berdyaev, who's, you know, um, yeah. Christian existentialist thinker who, you know, wrote... 1920s, um, I believe, right? Uh, well, he started out in the twenties, but like throughout the thirties, forties, yeah, thirties yeah, mm-hmm. into the forties, he 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 mm-hmm. wrote an enormous number of books. He was mm-hmm. living in Paris mm-hmm. most of the time, you know, sort of white Russian refugee there. And then um, yeah. uh, earlier um, philosopher Vlad, uh, uh, Vladimir Soloviev, yeah. he's generally considered the first Russian philosopher. They had political or social or sort of moralist thinkers, but not the philosophers sort of in the Western sense. But even that, he was a very mystical sort of, you know, spiritual philosopher. And he had this vision of a kind of universal Christianity. I mean, the, there's a religious sense that in, in the Russian character. Uh, okay, this, again, that, that sounds cliched and that sort of thing. And, and of course, mm-hmm. there's, uh, there's conflicting elements. There's a, you know, the there's a... One of the you know fractures running through certainly since Peter the Great is the element in Russian whatever, uh, consciousness that wants to you know be more European, um, yep. I don't know Western or whatever liberal whatever you want. But and then there's the other element that's known as Slavic. It's the Slavophiles. You know we know must you know and that seems to be more up these days um, and the but, Asian uh, part uh, this, this marriage well, between yeah, yeah, Europe, Europe and Asia yeah, well, right? I said all these all these things come together so okay so the <laughs> reason I saw in the book is Putin made all these gestures to these silver the, there's this wonderful period before the Bolshevik revolution from about 1890 but 19 you know 15 or 16 called mm-hmm. the silver age in, in Russian yeah. um, cultural history where Bedayev is part of that Soloviev but many, many poets and artists and painters and musicians and mm-hmm. and so on and so on. And um, it was a time of wonderful, mystical flowering and, and uh, actually kind of, you know, a, a, an occult revival as well, you know, a variety of sorts of things. And stuff that was happening in European capitals, like London and Paris had made its way over, yeah. mostly the sort of the yeah. Parisian, the Parisian sort of um, occultism, the kind of, a lot, there was a lot to do with black magic and Satanism, that kind of thing. But again, it was sort yeah. of, fashionable, what we would call transgressive, I guess, these days kind of thing. But there was there was a very serious side to it as well. And one of the things that Putin is doing or has been doing is trying to come up with a new identity for Russia because with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the failure apparently for more Western or European or liberal, um, you know, economic and social um, sort of, um, you know, uh, situations to, to take root there, that yeah. I've had an identity crisis. You know, we're yeah. not Marxist anymore. Mm. We're not European. 
what are we? <laughs> what are we? And so he's yeah. been gesturing, understandably, you know, I mean, again, how much he really believes is how much is cynical strategy. He's a politician and he's like, you know, he's a mafia boss. He's, he's, he's using time. those things. Yeah, sure. So he, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way supporting this. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm so, yes, we should all, we should read Berdyev and Soloviev and the people from the Silver Age. They're very important thinkers. And actually they say a lot that, what they were talking about the West a hundred years ago is very much still the case. You know, this yes. whole idea yes. that the, the West was becoming increasingly more materialist, 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 and it was losing yeah. the soul. And if Russia had anything, it had the soul. <laughs> you know, it's almost like yeah, a yeah, cliche. Yeah, yeah. The, Russia, the, the soul, soul and but this world. was something. So I mean, and the, yeah, the yeah. thing is, if you, you know, I mean, um, when. Uh, Liter Russian literature like came into its own in the, in the, in the 19th century, really. I mean, you have mm -hmm. Pushkin, but then you have Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, or yeah. Pushkin, Gogol, and then Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were overpowering, you know, to the European consciousness. I mean, yeah. you know, Tolstoyevsky was even, some people said, I can't, I can't read this. It's too, it's too intense. I mean, um, even I think, yeah, as I say in the book, Robert Louis Stevenson, who, you know, knew quite a bit about the dark side of the soul, Dr. Jekyll and sure. all, you know, all that kind of thing. He said he couldn't get through crime and punishment because he felt it was just, my God, it was just in too, too intense. And so, mm. um, so there's this intensity, this is kind of psychological, mm. but also spiritual sort of intensity that the West wasn't used to. And this is something that, you know, is part of this Russian character, you know, however cliched mm. it, it may sound and yeah. for good or bad cynically or you know genuinely putin has been gesturing to this yes uh, in order to you know kind of make connect reconnect with you know some greatness in in, in the russian past in, in order to somehow provide a kind of you know identity you know uh, yeah. for russian people now but i mean again in saying this, this is not in any way condoning his inexcusable no, no, yeah, ukraine which that. i mean yeah. which are connected to this kind of thing but there's a whole long you know history going back to kiev um <clears throat> i mean you can say the russian people started or, or as russia you know in 989 when vladimir won yeah. prince vladimir yeah. Converted from pagan, you know, Slavic paganism to Greek Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox. Yeah, exactly. And this happened in Kherson, which is yeah. now occupied by Russian troops. In 2014, the annexation yeah. of Crimea, mm -hmm. Putin took a stone back from Kherson to, to Moscow, and it became the cornerstone of this, I think, 20 meter tall statue to Vladimir yeah. I, yeah. which is just outside yeah. the Kremlin. <laughs> so the yeah. current Vladimir, yeah. you know, um, identifies to some degree with, you know, the, the original Vladimir back there. And that's kind of where Russia starts. So you can understand, again, not condoning, but you can understand why this would be an objective. Um, and also this ties into the whole notion of Holy Russia, whose Russia, you know, they, they take, they were the third Rome after the fall of the original Rome and then yeah. Constantinople to the Turks in 1453, Moscow, yeah. which had, yeah. had emerged, um, out of the centuries of the Mongol yoke. Yeah, exactly. This, this is what happened. A ancient Kiev, uh, Vladimir ones, you know, this is, this is known as the lost kingdom. This was like this golden age. And if you know, Zorsky's yeah. pictures at an exhibition, there's the, the, the golden gate. The golden Kiev gate. Part of of Kiev. And this exactly. Was, yeah. Kiev was, it was like, they were trying to re they were trying to model Kiev on Constantinople. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the story is the reason 
fundamentally why the uh, Russians converted was that they were overwhelmed with the beauty of Constantinople, of Hagia Sophia and all the incense and the chanting and, and the yeah. candles and, and the dome yeah. and, you know, the yeah. reflection and the icons. And it's this transfigured, you know, sense. And Dostoevsky himself, you know, beauty will save the world. This is something that he says in his novels. And so this this sense of this world to come. So there's this transfiguring beauty, but it is it's telling you what this is. This is the world that's going to come. The yeah. second coming when Jesus comes back or, you know, the, and so on and so on. So there's that element is part of that. Um, you know, when the Russian people embraced uh, Greek Orthodox Christianity, that that whole sense of, you know, the end times, you know, the history heading towards something. The apocalyptic, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and and, um, and also the, as I said, the maintenance of beauty within the within belief and in, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's an important an important factor which they which they say the Western churches have have lost, mm. didn't they? Mm -hmm. mm. Well, one of the things was, I mean, in, in the Eastern uh, the Byzantine Church like, in the Dark Ages or. We're not supposed to call them the Dark Ages, so I call them the Dim Ages. In the Dim Ages, um, you know, the Pla Plato who wasn't available in the West was still available um, in the East. So they, yeah. so they had access to a lot of that. So that's why, in general, sort of the Byzantine Church or the Greek Orthodox Church had sort of a more mystical kind of sense to it. Not to say that the Western Church didn't have any, but it, it was more worldly, you know. Um, I mean, and obviously, because it was tied to Rome and all of that. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, so, and then, you know, this was the whole, so this is whole background, you know, uh, to, um, what's happening, you know, there now. And then obviously it connects to other things. And we mentioned Dugan and one of the, one of the things that Dugan, um, has, you know, been going on, you know, for some time about is this ultimate battle that's supposed to take place between, um, these, these two archetypal opposing forces that mm. throughout all of history it's only been one one battle one conflict in different forms from these these archetypal forces and it's the what he calls the atlanticists which are the seafaring mercantile nations the merchants mm -hmm. that you know mm -hmm. and the you know motherland eurasia you know mm -hmm. the you know the mother of all continents the biggest landmass on the planet which is the um, Bearer of tradition, yeah. the capital yeah. T, and yeah. you know we know yeah. Evola was a traditionalist, and and, and yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. the school yeah. of Renan, uh, uh, René Guénon, and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and this is this this is the thing about that theory that this goes back to uh, um, an actual British uh, Edwardian, um, so geo geo you know political thinker um, Halford Mackinder, who gave a lecture on okay. this to the you know Geographical Society. Uh, where he said, you know, he said fundamentally there's there, there is this kind of conflict between, you know, th this more fluid, mm. you know, uh, international, yeah. global, you know, kind of Protestant. thing. And this, 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 you know, more yeah. stable, you know, structured, yeah. hierarchical. Um, and today that's 
Putin is Putin is, is spinning that in the sense that, oh, the West, the, the hyper liberal decadent West where everything is up you know for sale, everything's negotiable, reality is completely malleable, you know, whatever it might be, gender roles, sex roles, anything. You, it's like Burger King, you know, have it your way. You know, whatever you want, you can have it. And we here in Russia, we're standing for traditional gender roles and traditional sexual roles, all that kind of thing. And we're we're holding the bastion of the true Christian faith and all that kind of stuff now. And uh, that's the new kind of, you know, conflict. Yeah, um, at least I mean whether it's true or not, that's a different story. But that that's that's the rhetoric that that, that no, that's how it's absolutely. being painted. You know? Absolutely, and I think the book that you that you wrote here is a really gives an extraordinarily interesting background, uh, deep background to, un- I'm not saying understanding in the way, as you put it, and not understanding in the way as ac- uh, acknowledging it, but understanding what's going on in or what is being used to also manipulate people's minds, of course. Well, I, I, right. I, th- I think it is true that, you know, the, whatever you want to call it, the Western liberal European Anglo-American mind doesn't quite understand exactly what... Yeah is behind a lot of the stuff. I mean, you don't have to agree with it, but it's good to under- we'll put it this way. You can't disagree unless you understand. <laughs> you can only exactly. disagree with something if you understand it. You if, Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, just uh, emotional exactly. rejection. That, it's that, not, it's that, not that's disagreeing. That's why ages ago I read that famous book, Fundamentals, which was actually the creation of fundamentalism back, back right, in okay. the 19th century to understand what they were saying back there. It, 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 and I think you have to understand your... your well, I, and, but I think that's something that's, that's, my God, it seems to be missing very often. I mean, I, I, I just from my own little experience, uh, you know, I've done... Oh, talk, I mean, since, since the outbreak of, of the, the war in, in Ukraine, I've, I've done <laughs> quite a few talks. And um, there is one up there where I, I went on and looked at, you know, the comments and I just I couldn't believe, you know, t- sort of the vehemence <laughs> and, and rancor. And I just felt because there was the, uh, some people thinking I was supporting Putin by, by talking mm-hmm. about. There's, it's um, in any case. I, I, I won't name the particular interview, but they they sure. they thought because I was talking about like this religious or spiritual kind of context that I was somehow condoning it or saying it was a holy war that kind of thing. Or the other ones who saying I was supporting these you know Ukrainian Nazis or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like I'm not. It's not even you know supporting one of the others. It's like this is just. The backstory, as we tend this to see, information, you know, exactly. and it, it exactly. can help to, you know, somehow understand and illuminate, you know, things going on. Um, but, you know, it seems we, at least with many people, that, that those kind of positions are just too subtle. You know, you have to be for or against something. And what are you for? Well, that, that's <laughs> I'm, I'm against deep. people. I'm, I'm against missiles being shot at, you know, apartment buildings and innocent people dying. Exactly. So, I mean, that, exactly. isn't that enough? I mean, I would think that's obvious, but I mean, if I, don't and I, I think one should be able to uh, be against that in any part of the world. And uh, it's to me, it's amazing to me who grew up in the 1970s, so to speak, also ideologically. It's incredible to see that now the peace movement can be attacked uh, by, mm. I mean you, you have to be for peace genuinely uh, and that 
doesn't have any quality on it and any label on it. It's just yeah. peace, right? Uh, well, yeah. so, I mean, as I say in Dark Star Rising, I, I, I think we're, we are in this time of the war of all against all. I, I, I don't want to sound too apocalyptic, mm -hmm. but it does seem like we, you know, mm -hmm. there's all this rancor and people on social media, you know, and not only yeah. sadly on social media, people being, you know, shot and killed out there in, in, in the real yeah. world. Um, and, um, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, um, I, 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 I'm at a loss for words about it because, um, it seems difficult to say anything without stirring up some kind yeah. of, you know, opposition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the dangerous thing about it, because if people who are intelligent can't speak anymore because they are shot for the wrong reasons, then, then, then that's a problem. That's a real problem. Well, the, the intelligent ones are the first ones to go. You know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you get rid of those guys Absolutely. first and then you're, you're the rest of the ones are easy to deal with, you know, but that's, Absolutely. that's so just, Absolutely. you know, invest in a crash helmet. Yeah. Talking about which in order to, to, to round our talk up, Gary, what's on your tablets? What's your next plans, your next books that we should know about? Um, well, earlier this year, I finished um, a biography of um, a fellow named Morris Nichol, who ah. was, uh, he's most known as one of the teachers of the fourth way. He was a student of mm -hmm. Uspensky and Gurdjieff, but he started out um, originally as um, Jung's British lieutenant. Um, oh, really? Sort of his, you know, yeah, yeah, no, he, he wrote one of the first uh, books in English about Jung's um, psychology called Dream Psychology. And this is very early Jung. This is like before the archetypes almost. No, it's mm -hmm. just basically how he, how he differs from Freud at the at a very early stage. Um, and then oh, about a hundred years, yeah, a hundred years ago, um, he attended a lecture by Uspensky and Uspensky talking about wars and things like that. Uspensky, you know, and Gurdjieff, they were washed across an exploding Russia, yeah. you know, during the, you know, first, the revolution, the world, first world war, revolution, then the civil war. And yeah. they wound up in, you know, refugee camps in yeah. Constantinople, mm -hmm. soon to become Istanbul. Yeah. And through a series of almost miraculous um, events, Uspensky was saved from there and he was, he was sent to London here. And he famously gave a series of lectures and people like T.S. Eliot and Aldous Huxley and other literati attended them. And Nichol attended one of his lectures and um, he just basically was, you know, converted to uh, Uspensky from Jung. Mm -hmm. And then when Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff started his um, institute for mm -hmm. the harmonious development of man in Fontainebleau outside of Paris, yeah, yeah. a year later, in 1923, uh, Nichol went there. Uh, for a year and then he came back and by the early 30s he had he had set himself up as the teacher of the work and he's an interesting character because you know not everybody has Jung, Uspensky and Gurdjieff as a teacher <laughs> yeah, um, sure. he himself was a very very successful Harley Street uh, physician and, and, and psychiatrist Harley Street is a very famous street here in London that we're you know um, uh very successful, you know, doctors, um, have, right. have their, have their, uh, consulting rooms and so on and okay. so on. So okay. to have a place there means you really, you know, you've really you made, made it. it. Mm -hmm. And then at an earlier time under a pseudonym, um, he wrote some very, um, well, one best-selling sort of book and, um, series of stories for the strand magazine, which is the magazine in which the Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, yeah. um, oh, excuse Appeared, me, yeah. uh, where, where, uh, were premiered. So, um, interesting character. And, um, but he sort of forgotten mm -hmm. he's he's not he's not that well known 
So, um, yeah, I was, I was asked to do a book about him. So that's, uh, that's with the publisher now. So I don't know. I'm waiting to hear back from them about it. Okay. So I'm sort of in between at the moment. Okay. So, so that's always a new we'll things see. come up at that moment. That's like the hypnagogia. The hypnagogia state of the Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm in my own sort of liminal state right now. Yeah, Not quite, yeah, you know, yeah. open, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, great. Well, thanks, Gary, for interesting oh, hour in your company. And, um, uh, well, next time we'll meet, I hope we will not have that long time to be in <laughs> hypnagogia to make it happen. Um, yes. But um, it was great to have you. Thanks uh, for your open talk. And um, I we'll hope to have you back uh, sometime soon. Well, I'd be very happy to do that. Thank you. Bye now.
That was The Great Surrender by our fan and listener and great movie composer, Christer Linder. Thank you, Christopher, for that. And thanks, Gary, for being with us and being so outspoken and uh, open today, as always, actually. He's always like that. It was great to have Gary Lackman here, and it's certainly not been the last time. And, well, with that, I come also to the point where I have to thank you, dear listeners and friends, because you have been with this show the important part, because without you, who would we do our job for? So thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us once again on this episode, episode 17 of season eight, that was. And uh, well, next week, of course, there is going to be episode 18. You guessed it. Great. Episode 18 is again a trio episode. I don't know if all of you are already aware of what that is. Trio means where I invite a co-host. And that co-host is always somebody who was already one of my guests in a previous episode. So I had Greg Kaminsky here as a co-host. I had Carl Abrahamson as a co-host. And this time, well, next week, Mock Morgan will be my co-host. Mock, who I often call the art director of occultism because he knows everyone and as pub is publishing so many important and interesting books. And together, and upon his suggestion, we picked somebody for the interview who really should have been on this show before. And I'm great that grateful to Mark that he reminded me of that. So our guest, our common guest next week is going to be Nikki Weird. Nikki Weird, who was at some point the leader of the uh, British... Um, British chaos music, uh, chaos music. Oh my goodness, where am I? Chaos magic um, movement. And so, see, she has a lot of very interesting things to say. It was a great joy to talk to her. And Mock was a great co host. So, next week, it'll be Mock Morgan as my co host. And we are going to interview Nikki Weird on this show. But we have one week to wait for that and i hope that this week will be a good week for all of you good week for the world also the world needs it and well it's us who can change that we have to behave better to make it a better world don't we okay with that in mind take care stay tuned hear you soon